0: You ain't heard nothing yet.
1: Get around,
0: let Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it on an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why, so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, yes. I'm better.
1: He's the lion! Snap out of it! If
0: you call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend, oh, oh, oh. You have no style. You're going to bark all day, little dog. You're Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a
1: bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I got tricked into going to Hollywood proper twice this week somehow, but one of those trips... I actually got to finally see the musical Six, which I stupidly passed on seeing when I was in London three years ago. It was so much fun. It was more like a concert than an actual play. I remember a little bit of kind of how American Idiot was. It was just song, 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 if you saw American Idiot, um, without a lot of plot, a little bit of plot, not a lot of plot. I thought it was really great. It was very fun. It was exactly what I needed that day. So yeah, if you get a chance to see that, recommend that. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Machine. Yes, I went and saw The Machine. I really like Burt Kreischer's stand-up, and the only time this week I had some free time to get to the movies, this was the only film showing that was not The Little Mermaid or something made by the studio that I work for. So, The Machine. Not like I was exactly having my arm pulled to go see it, but, you know. As far as quality, this movie is It's just very, very, very basic story. It's not anything that's going to blow your mind, change your life. Very basic story. But the cinematography and style of this film was shockingly quite good. I would dare say incredible. If you're a fan of Burt's comedy, you'll enjoy seeing his famous Russian bit dramatized. If not, then this probably won't speak to you. It's one of those films, it's for whom it's for, and it's not going to be for a lot of other people if you don't have a familiarity with Bert Greiser. He can act, though, which I was pleasantly surprised to to discover. He's not bad. Now on to strike updates. Uh, not really anything to report as the fourth week of the strike comes to an end. Not any that have been made public anyway. Um, Production has been slowing down, which happens every time these strikes occur. That's nothing new. But as the weeks go on, there will be people returning to work as money gets tighter. It's, it's just a natural cycle of things. It happened in every single strike we covered specifically this week and all of the other ones that we didn't. DGA deliberations are still in process. SAG hasn't announced the results of their vote to strike. So everything's just completely in a holding pattern right now. Also, SAG deliberations with the AMPTP haven't even started, and they're probably not going to start until like June. I think it's June 7th. I forgot to double check the date. I'm pretty sure they go to to the table June 7th, which is when you hear this uh, 10 days from now. So it's the fact that they voted to strike before they even got to the negotiation table means that they just really want to strike. Like they're they're anticipating that ANPTP is just going to just go, no, 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 no. So that's not looking great, but we'll see. Anything can happen. They almost went on strike in 2009. Right after the writer's strike, there was turmoil for a year and they kept threatening to strike, threatening to strike, threatening to strike. Never actually officially went on strike. So. We'll see. And even though we're at the end of this month, end of the series, I'll give updates about all this as it happens. It is happening slower than I thought it would. Um, I will say that, but um, I'll keep you updated if anything changes. So with that, let's get on to this week's topic. This week, we're covering the last time Hollywood saw a major strike, which was the 2007-2008 WGA strike. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your personality and your uh, love for carnage. Uh, this, this strike has significantly less um, gas bombs and fire hoses than last week. So do with that information what you will. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime.
0: And I'll tell you one thing. There's a chance now that the Writers Guild of America, East and Writers Guild of America West will go on strike. Uh, we don't know right now if that's going to happen, but it looks like they may go on strike. And it could mean that all of your favorite television shows uh, will go away and and they may not come back and so what I'm trying to say is this could be your last look at me and Paul We don't know yet. We just don't know what's going to happen. And on the one hand, you have the, the welfare and the future of the Writers Guild of America members. I've been a member of that guild for all my life. And on the other hand, you have the, the welfare of the staff and the crew who work here at the Late Show. So it's, it's a tough decision. And yours truly, once again, caught right in the middle. R- right in the middle, ladies and gentlemen. Good. And, and if, this, if this strike turns out to hurt anyone, it'll be yours truly. I'm I'm the one who gets hurt here. Do you understand? Thank you. I'm glad we agree on that. Let me remind you of one thing. Regardless of what I do, I'm a hero, okay?
1: Nearly 30 years before our main focus today, back in 1985, the WGA managed to procure a contract that included residuals for home video, an emerging market at the time. Movies, which were available on Betamax, VHS, and Laserdisc, were selling for about $40 to $100 per unit, and the Guild had accepted a formula in which a writer would receive 0.3% of the first million of reported gross and 036 after each tape sold. This added to their residuals. Three years later, the WGA would go on strike for over five and a half months, the longest in the guild's history over similar issues, leading to a financial drain that would lead to a decade of labor peace. The unions weren't happy with the studio's residual models, but they weren't in a place financially to hold another strike over it. Throughout the 90s, large corporate mergers led to less unaffiliated channels, which meant less places for reruns to occur, which meant less residuals for writers. Eventually, cable would fill this void, and these channels would soon begin making their own shows and films. Then, of course, there were video games, which the studios began making a ton of money off of as they began licensing their films in order to be made into video games. So at least now, there were new revenue streams for everybody. Throughout these changes, manufacturing costs for videotapes, as VHS would win the platform war and become the standard home video format until DVDs took over in the early 2000s, dropped and the home video market widened as it became more financially viable for more houses to own a VHS player and multiple tapes. Originally, the average family would actually have to rent a VHS player from the video store in addition to the tapes they wanted to take home. Soon, the home video market became a staple of the industry, but writers, amongst other jobs, would feel shortchanged by their original deal when a newer platform would take over for VHS. DVDs entered the market in 1996 and rapidly replaced the VHS as they were significantly cheaper to make, which was why VHS won back out in the 80s, and would outsell VHS for the first time in June 2003. By 2007, the home video market had become the major source of revenue for the movie studios, more than the box office or reruns on television. In April 2004, the New York Times reported that the studios made $4.8 billion in home video sales versus just $1.78 billion at the box office between January and March of that year. These were the numbers used in negotiations and in articles I read as to why the writers went on strike. But in my opinion, this figure is a little bit misleading as January through March until very recently was considered like downtime for the box office as that's typically award season. And because it was award season, that is generally when like studios release like their crappy films that they know aren't going to do well. So they release it in a low risk area because people are conceivably going to see the films that were nominated for all the awards. But I digress. Summer is when you make your box office money. So if they had if they had based it off of like a whole fiscal year versus a quarter, especially that quarter, it would have been interesting to see how if it was as vast as, as that. Netflix had introduced streaming in 2007, and while it was incredibly limited back then—oh, the buffering on internet videos back in the day—it was indicative to many of what was about to happen. This and other emerging internet formats were known as new media, and there was currently no standard for residuals for new media. So every three years since 1970, the Guild has sat down with the AMPTP to negotiate over what is known as the Minimum Basic Agreement. It is over breakdowns of deciding this agreement that the writers tend to go on strike, or any of the Guilds really. This is the collective bargaining agreement that covers the benefits, rights, and protections for most of the work done by WGA members within the studios and with the producers. It is the bare minimum writers have to be given by studios and producers. Obviously, if you're more famous, you're going to get better deals than this. This is the absolute bare minimum that they have to give. And in that deal, the residual percentages on home video did not go up once between 1985 and 2007. 2004 had reportedly seen a very tense negotiation, mainly hinging upon home video rights, but once again, no headway was gained. This lack of change led to a shuffling in leadership in 2005, when it came time to vote for the new WGA representatives. They basically all got shuffled out, and a new group of leaders would oversee the next negotiation. Sensing what was probably going to happen, studios began stockpiling scripts as early as December 2006. Deliberations for the next contract began in mid-2007, dangerously close to the contract expiring, which was believed to be strategic on the WGA's part. On May 18, 2007, the WGA released its demands for what it wanted in this new agreement. The demands were approved by the WGA members, and on July 16th, negotiations with the AMPTP began. They lasted two whole days, went nowhere, and negotiations are paused until September. When deliberations restarted, WGA members argued that writers' residuals are a necessary part of a writer's income, especially during periods of unemployment, which is quite common in the writing industry, and frankly, this is the case for most creative film and TV production jobs. Taking this into consideration, WGA came to the table wanting to double the DVD residual rate, which would result in a residual of 0.6% per DVD sold. This was averaging out to about 4 cents per DVD for most writers. Doubling meant they'd get 8 cents if you're bad at math. And you'd think, like, sure, fine, whatever, it's 4 cents. But if you give a mouse a cookie, the other mice are all going to want a cookie, and they are going to want their share of a cookie, which is not the same size cookie that the writers got. If the writers got more, then the directors are going to want more, which means the actors are also going to want more, and the actors tend to get way, way more. So that $0.04 was going to end up costing closer to $0.40 when all was said and done. When you do all the super smart finance math that I don't understand, thank you, Jonathan Handel, his book is in the show notes, that yields about a 5% loss in studio revenue, which, of course, they were trying to avoid as recessions appeared to be approaching. Spoiler alert for those of you under 25, there was one, and it started shortly after all of this resolved. The AMPTP countered the writers' demands, claiming that the studio's DVD income was necessary to offset rising production and marketing costs. They further insisted that the current DVD formula should also be applied to residuals and other digital media, an area which was also contested by the Writers Guild, but was still incredibly young back then. Netflix streaming was only about eight, nine months old at this point. It debuted in January 2007. Making no headway, strike authorization ballots were mailed on October 1st, 2007, which angered the AMPTP and pretty much killed any chance of an agreement being made before a strike might happen because clearly the writers had already made up their minds in the eyes of the AMPTP. The final negotiations between the WGA and AMPTP before the writers' contracts expired began on October 25th, but the talks broke down due to the issues surrounding new media royalties. After the contracts expired on Halloween, the WGA West held a meeting at the LA Convention Center, which was attended by 3,000 WGA members. At that meeting, the negotiating committee formally recommended a strike. The East and West chapters of the Writers Guild officially announced that the strike would begin at 12.01 a.m. on November 5th. In a Hail Mary move to avoid striking, no one wants to really go on strike, really. The WGA temporarily withdrew its DVD residuals proposal on November 4th, but the AMPTP still refused any residuals on new media. Talks broke down, with both sides accusing the other of just walking out of the conversation. So on November 5th, nearly 3,000 WGA West members, plus some SAG members and Teamsters, picketed or refused to cross the picket lines at 14 studios in Los Angeles that had active protesters in front of them. East Coast picketers marched in locations in New York, including Rockefeller Center. The picket lines continued along with various rallies throughout the strike period in both cities, as well as a few others. After the strike began, WGA West president Patrick Veroni declared that the membership exhibited, quote, significant disappointment and even anger, end quote, when they learned that the DVD request had been tabled. Veroni also said that since the removal of that request was basically an informal offer to avoid striking and but to get everything else, the writers should continue to, quote, fight to get our fair share of the residuals of the future, end quote. So that had to be in the agreement. After four days of picketing, a large rally was held outside of the 20th Century Fox Gate on Friday, November 9th, which saw an attendance of 4,000 WGA West members and supporters. There's also a bunch of celebrities that were talking, which is always ironic to me because I'm like, you're rich, you're fine. But I digress. Two weeks in, both the WGA and the AMPTP mutually announced that talks would resume on November 26th. That same day saw 2,500 alleged protesters at Universal Pictures, which is highly unlikely as currently they can only fit maybe a few hundred. And three of the munchkins from The Wizard of Oz even joined protesters in a sign of solidarity. There were also like theme days at some of these picket lines. Like they had horror writers hold an exorcism outside of Warner Brothers. They had a Star Trek day outside of Paramount. They had gay days. It was quite the shift from like the protesters of, of yesteryear. Before negotiations would resume, however, the writers received endorsements or words of encouragement from three current Democratic presidential nominees, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and John Edwards. Remember him? On November 20th, 4,000 members of the WGA and other supporting unions marched down Hollywood Boulevard. By this point, over two dozen films and television shows had shut down as the strike continued. Around this time, some talk shows did resume production without writers in order to avoid having to lay off the other members of their staffs. Strikes don't happen in a bubble, especially in an industry as collaborative as film and TV is, and eventually it bleeds into other people's livelihoods, leading to either resentment from those individuals affected or an increased fear against the quote-unquote man. So some of these, like especially the talk show hosts, they had like a responsibility to these other people. So they just went back without writers and they would just kind of just be chit-chatting. Like Conan really thrived. I remember during this time. Like he this is when he started doing like if you're if you're a fan of Conan, this is when he started doing the Jordan Schlansky stuff. Like that came out of the writer strike. It was and all the videos he does kind of with that he did with his staff and stuff, that all came that all originated from this era. But yeah, so that's what, you know, some people made those decisions to cross picket lines to protect their other employees. And, you know, typically a little bit of, you know, more support, or a little bit of resentment. It, there's a little bit of both that always comes out of situations like this for people who don't get to go back to work or get laid off as a result of strikes. And that was beginning to become an issue here. It happens every time. This one currently going on will be no exception. It just hasn't happened yet. Back in 2007, the Teamsters, who are the guys who drive the trucks, they'd originally been like, yay, riders. Well, they were now crossing picket lines en masse. The multi-hyphenates were also returning to their shows in a producing-only capacity. It's not breaking the rules of the strike, as long as they're not writing, but it's certainly not a good look when solidarity is your goal. So now, with facing, you know, a little bit more opposition than they'd initially had, writers needed to show that they were at least trying to make this end. And the studios, for their part, also really needed to make it look like they were making an effort. Shows had all gone dark far quicker than they'd expected because a ton of their writers pulled double duty as as the show's producers, and pilot season was coming up, which meant they needed writers developing new ideas for new shows, and the studio's big ticket items, which were still movies back then, were now in a real danger of getting postponed or canceled, which would cause repercussions for years because it takes a long time to make a movie. Movie slates are planned out like three to five years in advance. Also, the studios were definitely being depicted as the villains this time around, which was a a new thing for them, new-ish thing for them, which was a narrative they were desperately trying to avoid. The agents were even starting to step in to try and find an agreement with all of this mess, as it was starting to hurt them as well. They can't make money if their clients are striking or unemployed because the writers are striking. The AMPTP submitted a new proposal to the WGA on November 29th, reportedly worth an additional $130 million in compensation. The WGA responded that it did not understand how they got that number, but they were pleased that the AMPTP was proposing contract deals within that range. Both sides agreed to a four-day recess at the WGA's request, and talks resumed on December 4th. And talks fell apart once more on December 7th, when the AMPTP walked away from the table, issuing a press release that they would not return until the WGA dropped several key proposals, among them the reality clause. What was that? Well, there had been arguments going on as to whether the WGA and their minimum base agreement should apply to other TV and film categories such as reality. Some TV shows, namely the formal studio ones, think game shows or panel shows, had been under the basic agreement for the WGA, but others, like America's Next Top Model and Survivor, were not. Ironically, reality TV surged at this time, which led to a boom in that industry that is frankly still going on today, at least it feels that way, and they are still not covered, by and large, by the minimum basic agreement. The WGA wanted contract language clarifying that reality programming does fall under its jurisdiction. They further proposed the adoption of the credits Story Producer and Supervising Story Producer to be given to writers performing story contributions to a reality show. Sorry reality TV show fans, a lot of these shows are scripted, at least a little bit, either on set or in the editing rooms. The other thing, the other major thing, I should say, that caused AMPTP to walk away was the WGA's desire to claim animation writers as their own. Animated films and TV shows had been an area of heavy contention over the years, as you may remember from a couple of weeks ago. And the majority of animated film and television writing is not covered by the WGA's agreement, and spoiler alert, still isn't. Most animated films are written under the jurisdiction of IATSE Local 839, which is the modern animation guilds. IATSE's jurisdiction stemmed from Disney's tradition of making an animated film via storyboards written and drawn by storyboard artists, with a script developing after that from those images. In the years leading up to the strike, however, most animation studios began hiring screenwriters to write a script first, which was then storyboarded. In short, the process is now reversed. According to the WGA, 100% of animated feature film screenplays from 2005 were written by at least one WGA member, and some animated features such as Beowulf was even written under a WGA contract. The WGA and IATSE were also having an ongoing disagreement as to which union should represent these animation writers. So it went it, it went all the way to the top. Everyone both of them wanted the other one real real bad. So what the WGA had wanted to do was to clarify its jurisdiction over animation writers and to cover all animation and TV and film that did not encroach on jurisdiction of another union but that hadn't changed Iozzi's resentment the the third final biggie one, there were a few other little minor ones uh, that caused the studios to walk away, was something called a sympathy strike clause, meaning the writers could strike whenever they wanted without warning in solidarity with another union going on strike. And there is no way that was ever going to pass. Like that is that's how like far afield some of these demands can be in these rooms. The walking away of the AMPTP over these bargaining points was believed to also be strategic because it intentionally delayed negotiations. So its members could terminate unwanted production contracts via something called force majeure, which you'll start hearing more about with the current strike in the next couple of weeks. Contracts in entertainment have a clause that if work stops or doesn't start for a certain amount of time, then the studios can terminate that contract with no legal repercussions. Letting these people go and cleaning house of the writers and others not reporting to work's contracts meant everybody would be considered to have abandoned their job and then they would have to renegotiate their contracts if and when the studio decided to renew them. No longer having to pay these people on these contracts while the strike continued would also be a major cost saver. According to Wall Street, the impact of accepting all of the WGA's proposals was, quote, largely negligible and, quote, financially small for these studios at this time, which meant they were probably doing it because they feared that if if they settled with the writers, it would, quote, embolden directors and actors in their coming negotiations. Also, the studios knew that if they settled with the DGA before the writers, the writers would basically get curtailed into following the same guidelines. and the directors historically had been easier to deal with. They went on strike I think one, I think it was only one time, and it was for like three hours. like it's it was not a significant amount of time at all. And the writers knew that they certainly weren't going to get more than the directors. They're essentially the leadership of the sets. It's just not going to happen. The studios also had all the money and could sit on all of this longer with less financial devastation. There, w- it w- there would still be some, but it wasn't going to be as much as, like, a two-income household. They They had way more money than a two-income household. And, you know, as far as, like you know, the strikers, the higher ups don't have to sit at their desks and listen to the honking all day like certain podcast hosts speaking into this microphone do. So if you didn't have to listen to that all day, you wouldn't be in a rush either. Another opposition coming from WGA was Iozzi like I mentioned earlier, as they were going increasingly critical over the writers' demands. I mean, their people were out of work at this point and they were trying to snipe a sizable chunk of their membership from them. So not really surprising. On December 11th, 500,000 pencils were delivered to the gates of many of the studios, a symbol from the writers and their desire to return to work. Many of the studio heads denied this special delivery. Two days later, it was announced that the DGA would begin their negotiations earlier than expected. On December 18th, picketing paused for the holidays. The strike was estimated to have cost the local economy about $220 million so far. In total, it's estimated it cost the local economy about $2 billion when all of this was said and done. In mid-December, the WGA announced plans to try to negotiate with individual production companies, the smaller ones, to end the impasse. But first, they'd filed a complaint with the labor board claiming that the AMPTP was being difficult. Nothing came out of that because, to this day, the labor board still moves at a snail's pace. At the start of January 2008, deals were made amongst the smaller companies that weren't directly affiliated with the large studios. David Letterman was allowed to return to air with writers, and film production companies like United Artists procured independent deals, allowing them to resume business as usual. On January 9th, the force majeure notices began going out, and on January 12th, the DGA talks began. They reached a deal five days later. The DGA deal included residuals on iTunes downloads, which was the only name in the game really at this point, at least in the US, I can't speak to international markets, and what they'd agreed to was at a significantly lower rate than what the writers had gone to the table with, eight times less to be exact. If the directors accepted this, there was not a snowball's chance in hell writers were going to get a higher cut than them. It just doesn't happen. The directors also agreed to a flat fee for ad-supported content viewing, a cut of digital rentals which Apple had just announced within like a couple of weeks of this happening, amongst a few other things. Ironically, the DGA wouldn't have gotten as good a deal as they had had the writers not shot for the moon with their demands. So with the DGA squared away, the studios agreed to an informal return to talks with the WGA. Both parties decided to go back to the negotiating table on January 22nd, with the president of the WGA, West, ordering a media blackout of any progress being made within the negotiation rooms. Before that, it was announced that the animation and reality proposals were going to be dropped from the proposal. On January 25th, it was announced that the WGA had made an interim agreement with Lionsgate, a pre-Disney Marvel Studios, RKO, and Spyglass. The AMPTP released a statement that these types of agreements would become, quote-unquote, meaningless once the NBA was reached, as it was the reigning base agreement. You couldn't have all these little agreements that defeats the purpose. On February 2nd, multiple media reports suggested that there had been significant progress involving breakthroughs on key issues in the talks. There was also kind of a a deadline looming. The studios wanted the Oscars to happen. You need writers for that, too. And the writers knew that if they didn't reach a deal by the time the Oscars aired, they would lose their last major bargaining threshold if they missed that deadline. So they, they wanted the deal done. Rumors began spreading that an agreement had been struck and that a contract proposal might be announced. On February 9th, 2008, it was announced that a deal had been struck and the WGA called a meeting on that proposed contract. The tentative contract proposals were provided to the membership and the WGA started a 48-hour vote for Guild members on February 10th, voting to end the strike. 92.5% of membership voted to end the strike. And on February 26th, about 93.6% of WGA members ratified this new three year contract, which would be effective until May 1st, 2011. So, what did they get? Amongst a bunch of confusing things that would bore you all to tears, sets of new media guidelines, including a definition of what new media actually was, was established. Going forward, new media would include internet and mobile content for any new medium that came to market after February 12, 2008. If a union member worked on a show for this medium over a certain budget, the MBA would trigger... There were also protections put in place for lower budget new media works as well, and their compensation would be based on a per minute of finished product basis. Their pensions and healthcare provisions would also apply to new media. No ad revenue residuals would be paid to writers for new media projects at first, but they would get 1.2% residuals on rentals of the project once it hit a certain threshold. This differed from work to work. For theatrical, ad-supported content, writers would get 1.2% of gross and 2% for TV, but only on projects post-July 1st, 1971 for film and post-1977 for TV. DVD residuals did not change. In all, the contract was an improvement over what they'd had, you'd hope so, but it was a far cry, frankly, from what they had wanted. Following that strike, a chaotic year-long SAG negotiation mess happened, but that union never fully went on strike. Since 2008, the following notable changes have been made to the MBA for the WGA. In 2011, they got an increase to their pension funds, which was nice. Um, there was residuals for programs for made for streaming television, and residuals for programs made for pay television were increased, as that had become more popular. In 2014, the Guild negotiated minimums for streaming shows on high-budget streaming projects. They got new compensation standards. There were new minimums to ensure adequate pension and health contributions for writers on all streaming and on-demand programs. In 2017, the WGA almost went on strike again over desired increases to the health fund, but they did not end up going on strike. They also got gains on limitations on the span of work for writer-producers employed on short season series, which were becoming more popular in the streaming sphere specifically, and additional compensation for work beyond their initial contracts if that did happen. So basically, they got overtime, but it was weeks instead of like 20 minutes. There was a first ever new media foreign residual added and increased residuals for the first year ad based video streaming. In 2020, the Guild secured a historic maternity-paternity leave for its members, which is huge, um, and it also clu- included, in addition to you know making babies the old-fashioned way, would include the adoption of a new child or the placement of a foster child, and it proceeded, obviously, to both parents. They also gained, on most minimums, initial compensation residuals for high- and low-budget streaming programs, which is... A good one. And they also got rid of the new writer discount and the trainee wages, which were two contract provisions the studios had come up with, which had led to lower paychecks for writers from underrepresented groups. Which brings us to 2023. Even 15 years later, streaming's only gotten bigger. It's still a major sticking point in, frankly, any of these negotiations as it becomes more and more the norm. Home video is basically dead now, as streaming is king and DVDs are seen as clutter, which is a four-letter word now. I wholeheartedly disagree, by the way. I am cottagecore till I die. I bought three Criterion Collection DVDs this week alone. It's it's a, an addiction I'm trying to stop from happening because they're digital. <laughs> um, but there's some I want. They look nice on the shelf. Writers also have a new enemy in the form of artificial intelligence, AI, which, while fun to play with, is steadily becoming major competition for these people's jobs. And that is only going to become a growing issue as that tech develops. Basically, whatever agreement ends up getting made between the writers and AI is is going to influence all of these conversations and all of these unions and not just entertainment going forward. It's going to be a huge situation. It's fun now, but it it's going to go for a lot of people. People's jobs, and I don't think that conversation has happened enough yet, but this is an important first look into like, okay, what are we going to do about this? Like, yes, it's it's cute, but it's it's powerful. So what happens next? based on the learning that i've done this month this is the most i've ever gone into strikes ever in my whole voracious appetite for knowledge i'm willing to bet we see the force majeure hammer drop again there's that's the only reason that i can even fathom as to why like no talks to resume talking have happened that's it's been a, almost a month that's very strange the city is also bank scripts They've got time. They also know people are going to cross lines eventually, as they've always done. That's not going to change. You hit people in their pocketbook. Morals get compromised real fast. And I'm not saying it's a, it's an immoral or a moral thing. It, that's up to you and your God. Like, do whatever you want. Technically, I'm crossing a picket line every single day. I'm not happy about it, but baby's got to pay rent. <laughs> I don't think anybody it's very awkward to like look those people in the eyes and just being like hi I'm gonna go get paid have fun striking it is a especially when it's kind of a field I'd like to get into it's a very and it's also very strange to be on the studio side of things uh, just seeing seeing this from the other end because I've before this I'd only ever seen it from like the artist side I was like and it's. It's interesting because, you know, you've got to consider the, the, the studios also have to pay all these people that do the infrastructure stuff and all this stuff. But the writers are, are driving a lot of that. So it's it's a very morally speaking, if you can call it morally speaking, it's it's a toughie. And honestly, after all of this, I don't really I mean, like they definitely need to get paid more because inflation's a bitch. But <laughs> it's it's trickier to to see both both sides of this argument every single day. To have like both feet in both worlds at the same time it's it's been it's been interesting. It's been very enlightening, I think is the college word I'd like to use if that's a college word that might be like a high school word anyway, back to you know effects. most people <laughs> went on a tangent there. Most people in these gigging jobs, they lost whatever savings they may have had because of covid. The pandemic affected All of these people, they couldn't write for a big chunk of time and not writing means they couldn't make shows that could potentially trigger residuals. And there's so much content and it's just a mess. And the guilds were also financially drained, supporting its members through it. They're not going to be as financially flushed as they might have been back in 2007, 2008, because they had 10 years of like the 90s were a great studio time, more or less. So... They, they had time to stockpile money and resources and stuff. They don't really have that right now. Also, studios, they're still going to get streaming money while well, all of this happens. They don't have, they're don't they not going to have to pay people in like a couple of weeks. They're still going to get streaming money. Like people are still going to rent movies. They're still going to entertain themselves how they did. That's not going to change really anything. That streaming money is going to continue to come in. The tap is still on. It's it's a little bit less hard than it was, but it's it's still running. And there's also the DGA's at the table right now. If the DGA settles before the WGA like it did 15 years ago, that's going to severely hurt them again. The fact that there's not even talks on the table for the WGA and AMPTP to resume negotiations makes me think that that's strategically what the AMPTP is trying to do. If if like if they say this, you're not getting more than this, it'll be done. So, we'll see what happens. Also, streaming is Potentially proving not to be the moneymaker Netflix made it seem to be in those early years, so there really should be calls to probably regulate all of that. Like we don't get like concrete numbers of who watched an, a, a a streaming show. The only people that know that are like the tippy top executives, and that's why part of this has been so difficult to do with residuals. We don't know how much a show is getting, and we don't, and people don't know how to calculate that. So that's another thing that's. That's got to come up in these talks. Is like, how are we going to regulate this? Like, this has got to be regulated some way. People have got to know these numbers. So we know how much to pay people. So it'll be interesting to see. It probably won't happen this time, but maybe in the next 5-10 years, if Netflix and Amazon and all these other streamers, if they're still allowed to keep those numbers, you know, internal or like... MI6-level clearance, DEFCON 1 secret. Like, is that going to continue? Yeah, I don't know how to pay people. And saying I somebody watched a show for a billion hours is not a a metric that people can use to pay people. So something's got to give. A, a few things probably have to give, but, you know, we'll see. So, yeah, that's, that's about it for me this week. Right now, with the 2023 writers' strike, we are just going to have to wait and see what happens. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media. We also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. Gotten some good suggestions. I'm probably using one for my one-off episode in December that I cannot believe I didn't think of, but I will keep you in suspense until then. I've got a Letterboxd account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the description. Show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. I've got people coming over tonight, so I had to do it old school and use my Chemex, but coffee be coffee. So that's nice. I've also got merch. Check it out with the link in the show notes. Next month, we're covering the careers of some of the most famous duos Hollywood has ever seen. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.